Hello, my good people. It's Dennis Wisco. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Wisco Weekly. I'm here with you trying to make sense of everything that is going on in this pandemic and in this economic crisis. And we have now entered the phase of the economic crisis that is dealing now with stimulus packages. We've already passed the CARES Act. We've passed two rounds of the Paycheck Protection Program, which has now totaled about $670 billion in loans and grants available to small businesses. And there's no doubt that in the coming months, we will see another stimulus package specifically targeting the automotive industry. If you recall, back in 2009, there was the Cash for Clunkers program. The Cash for Clunkers program was a stimulus program aimed at stimulating new car sales, but specifically as a way to discourage people driving less fuel-efficient vehicles on the road. They would trade that in and they would buy a new vehicle that was more fuel-efficient. That was the Cash for Clunkers program back in 2009. Get someone out of their old used car and into a new car. Well, in Los Angeles, there's an organization, a public-private partnership called the Transportation Electric Elect, Transportation Electrification Partnership, which is comprised of public and private sector individuals. They are looking to propose a stimulus package that incentivizes more electric vehicles. Now, we have the 2009 stimulus package and potentially this other stimulus package aimed at incentivizing more electric vehicles. There has to be something else in between that. And that's what is one of the topics that are covered today with my guest, Mr. Dale Pollock, the founder of V-Auto and the executive vice president at Cox Automotive. I want to thank my media partners, Comotion Miami and Automotive Mastermind for their support of Wisco Weekly. Please do check out Comotion Miami. They have their event scheduled towards the end of June, uh, June 25th and 26th, I believe, uh, in Miami. And it's a great event. I went to their uh, Comotion Los Angeles event and I'm a bi- I was a big fan of all the guests, all the speakers, all the topics, all the people that were there. And I'm sure it's going to be another great one that they will put on in Miami towards the end of June. You could visit wiscoweeklypod.com slash commotion to learn more. And also you could get 20% off admission to attend their event. And I also want to thank Automotive Mastermind. Automotive Mastermind is the leading predictive analytics and marketing automation company in the mark in the automotive space and the automotive retail space. To learn more about them, visit wiscoweeklypod.com slash mastermind. Now, Are you ready to learn what could happen, what will happen in this next future or in this immediate future of automotive retailing? I'd now bring to you Mr. Dale Pollack, founder of Viado, executive vice president of Cox Automotive. You are now tuned in to... The Wisco Weekly Experience. Mabuhay, bienvenidos, vitate, willkommen, and welcome to Wisco Weekly. Listeners, thanks for tuning in to another episode. I'm your host, Dennis Wisco, and you are tuned into the podcast that is exploring the new business models for the mobility of people and goods. On today's episode, 
ladies and gentlemen. Oh, we got a good one for you. You know, it always helps in times of crisis to have clarity. And on this particular episode, we do have one of the leading experts in the automotive space to help provide some additional clarity to us. So having said that, my guest today is one of the leading authorities on automotive dealership management strategies. He's a proven entrepreneur, founder of V-Auto, author of multiple automotive books, and father to two Hoosiers. And not to be outdone, he is also a proud alumnus of Indiana University, where he received his undergraduate degree in business administration. And his formal education didn't stop there. My guest graduated from the General Motors Institute of Automotive Development, and he also obtained his law degree from DePaul University. Here to share insights on the volatility of the used market, men, women, and children, please welcome to the show, Mr. Dale Pollack. How are you, sir? Good. Thank you very much, Dennis. Well, I'm excited to have you on. I think that obviously, obviously, you don't need to hear this from me, but there's a number of people that respect you in the industry. And because of what's going on right now, um, they're all looking to you. They're all looking for clarity on how to move forward. And so I'm hoping today that's kind of what we can get to. Before we start, though, uh, Mr. Pollock, uh, how can people follow you? Um, I post routinely on my blog at dalepollock.com. That's D-A-L-E-P-O-L-L-A-K.com. And uh, I'm also uh, always willing to take telephone calls or emails. So I put my email and my telephone number out there if it's okay. My cell phone is area code 630-926-9016. And my email is dpollock, again, that's D-P-O-L-L-A-K, at theauto.com. Mr. Pollock, in the history of this show, no one's ever, ever offered their mobile telephone number. I mean, again, maybe I think that just, again, speaks to your character, sir, more than anything else. Holy cow. Happy to help any way I can. And, and listeners, I will put all of that information on the episode page so you can find it there. Okay, Mr. Pollock. A lot of a lot of things going on, and and you have certainly been in the eyes uh, of the industry, probably even more so over the last week or so, um, and trying to provide clarity to the automotive ecosystem and and specifically to retailers. And you know, one of the thing, and, and I guess one of the things I want to back up on, listeners. One of the things I will also include on the episode page, Mr. Pollock and the rest of the team at um, Cox Automotive gave a, a very riveting presentation and webinar yesterday to provide even granular data and insight into the automotive space. I had the chance to attend it, and it was it was super awesome. So I'm, I'm thankful for, for learning more about what's going on in the used car market as a result of that. Having said that, there are a lot of things that you have already discussed on automotive news, CBT, even on your own website. And I was hoping to provide some clarity on, on how you're thinking about things. One of the things that you have mentioned on your open letter is which, what we're seeing on the screen here. And I quote, many dealers arrive at a clear conclusion of what they should do with their current used vehicle inventory, sell it quickly and keep the cash. 
The sell now strategy also makes sense given another business in crisis reality, that is cash is king. So Mr. Pollock, you could have said a lot of different things and advocated for, you could have said that's, you know, uh, retailers should look to be more data driven. Uh, you could have said that there's the, you know, you with the current inventory you have, maybe you look to investigate flexible ownership, although I don't know that you would have said that specifically. But uh, again, there's lots of things you could have advised. However, you are you're you're wanting to recommend that cash is king. And so I'm interested in why it is that this is one of the particular philosophies that you advocate for right now. Right. Well, I, I appreciate that question. Um, first and foremost, the recommendation of converting cars to cash simply faces the reality that our business, the retail automobile business, is presently off considerably, and it's uh, my belief that it will remain off um, for a very long time to come. And yet expenses continue. So first and foremost, the recommendation to convert cars to cash is one for survival. I think it's imperative during a downturn for dealers to have uh, ready access to cash to pay their bills. Um, once they have their cash uh, or their expenses covered with cash, I think secondarily, there is a strong opportunity to participate in a new greatly reduced wholesale price market and ultimately prosper in the retail market for having done that. But first and foremost, as I said, it's a survival strategy. Most dealerships, as you probably know, have the preponderance of their cash tied up in their used vehicle inventory, which are relatively illiquid uh, assets. So it's just a liquidity strategy for survival foremost. And does, I mean, I know this is kind of an adage that will always hold up. Um, given the trend in retail prices for used cars and that most dealers are holding the line of their retail price, is there a certain maybe time frame that you would, or, or you know, maybe you don't have, have to get that specific, but you know, what would be the components of a time frame that retailers should look to start to liquidate inventory into cash? Right. The term liquidation implies a certain amount of urgency. And I speak of that word liquidation implying urgency purposely, because what we have seen over the course of the last four weeks is the wholesale market dropping presently to the extent of roughly 12% on average. So what that means is that the vehicles that the dealers currently have in inventory likely were purchased in a previous wholesale market environment that was roughly 12% higher. So they're sitting with millions of dollars of inventory that literally could be replaced or duplicated tomorrow for, for tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars less. So then the question is, well, okay, what's the hurry? Well, I think that there's a moment of opportunity for a dealer who really gets after it quickly, because strangely, although the wholesale markets dropped 12%, the retail market has only dropped roughly 1% to date. So there's an asymmetrical relationship between wholesale values and retail values. And normally, uh, wholesale and retail values move in concert. But this is a black swan event 
and it's caused a disruption and consequently that asymmetry. So while there is that asymmetry, I think there's a marvelous opportunity for dealers to uh, discount their vehicles the minimal possible amount and differentiate themselves from a value standpoint from the masses of other retailers uh, marketing similar vehicles. So I think this is a good case where the early bird gets the worm, gets the reward uh, by being an early mover in terms of converting these cars to cash. Once every dealer comes to terms with the fact that they're going to have to reduce their inventory and everybody starts to do it in earnest, um, I think it's going to touch off a bit of a race to the bottom mentality and the amount that any given dealer is going to have to discount in order to differentiate themselves in terms of positive value relative to the whole will be a greater amount later than it is today. You know, is there is there any correlation that we can draw from from the 08 financial crisis and the you know, the used car market at that time? You know, one of the things I can recall is it be in the absence of data a lot of retailers were appraising vehicles for a relatively what became an arbitrary amount, but eventually it seemed like it was just the standard. And I, I recall that the dealership, the dealership I was at, the the standard uh, trade in value was whatever wholesale minus five thousand. And again, that was kind of the standard way that they would try to operate. Is there any similarities that or correlations that we can draw from the 08 financial crisis that can also give some greater insight onto the onto the values of, of used cars? Well, you know, looking back to the 08 crisis, actually, uh, values of used vehicles held up very strong. Um, I can recall distinctly advising dealers at that time uh, to liquidate inventory, and it actually turned out to be uh, the wrong move. Um, and believe me, I've thought a lot about that in recent days as I now am telling dealers once again to liquidate inventory. So I've, I've examined uh, my, my thinking carefully about what uh, possibly is different in this scenario than what we experienced in 08. Because in 08, uh, people really stopped buying new cars because just the affordability issue under the crush of the, cri the financial crisis. And they switch those purchases to used vehicles. Um, so the, the, the values of used vehicles actually held very strong. I think the difference this time is the asymmetry that I referred to. Um, the wholesale values were strong, actually rose, and they supported uh, retail values that were strong. I'm concerned this time seeing wholesale values drop and retail values not dropping. Because the reality, once again, is if a dealer had a magic wand and could wave it and, and make every vehicle they have in inventory today turn into cash, they could take that cash and replace those vehicles in the wholesale market for 12% less. It equates to thousands of dollars. So it's, it's that asymmetry that exists this uh, crisis that wasn't their last crisis that leads me to the conclusion that if I were a dealer, uh, I would rather have my inventory own 12% less than I have it today. That would give me a distinct competitive advantage in the market tomorrow. So that's the difference. And I think that supports the recommendation of uh, resetting your cost basis of your inventory to reflect the new reality of a 12% reduction in the wholesale market. I 
I, I got chills, chills on my, on my arm, Dale. I think that was that, that, that absolutely now makes absolute sense, especially when you look at this in the context of the 08 financial crisis. So this, I am now fully on board with this strategy. Again, I, not to say I wasn't on board before, but I also thought that the cash is king advocacy was kind of, you know, your standard adage in, in economic crisis times. But as you, as you are able to sh- share your insight and experience and, and you kind of see the difference of, of what the used car market is now versus what it was eight, nine, 10 years ago, that makes absolute sense. So thank you for that. Let me just say this. I mean, there's, there is another line of thinking that would potentially controvert my thinking. And I, and I think it's fair to put it out there. And this is a very fluid dynamic environment and I don't want to be singularly minded uh, on anything. And, but one of the things that is really beginning to emerge is the disruption to the OEM supply chain. And, and one could construct an argument that would say that uh, there'll be a shortage of new cars and when there's a shortage of new cars, uh, a certain amount of that otherwise new car demand will be shifted to the used car market. And, and I do think that that is likely to happen to a certain extent. But there are a couple of different problems taking that possible scenario and translating it into not moving current used car inventory. And, and, and one of those problems in that potential translation is that the new car shortage, if one exists, and it may very well exist, uh, won't surface for, uh, at best, I would say, three months. The reason being is that there's roughly a three-month supply of vehicles, new vehicles on dealers' lots right now. So if one really thinks there is going to be a shortage uh, three months from now, and there might be, think about what the value of your current used car inventory might be three months from now, uh, if you didn't sell it between now and then, or if you uh, got very proud of it between now and then. So I, I, I think that the math, the simple math of waiting for the possibility and maybe even the likelihood of a new car shortage, I think will only uh, further uh, make the current inventory more, even more out of line with what the wholesale market will be then. So you know, I, I think I, I encourage dealers not to act as speculators, but rather to act as prudent retailers, which in my mind means, you know, don't try and position yourself today for something that may or may not happen in the future. You could be wrong. You could be right. I think rather the better strategy for dealers is to, um, is to act today in response to what are the realities as we know them right now. And whatever comes later will adjust at that point. Yeah, and certainly there there can be that gut reaction amongst any you know, not even dealer but business executive to see what's going on and immediately you know do the thing that that has always made sense in the case of dealers that would be to just offload all the inventory. But however, as you said, you know, if you're now looking at you know potentially the new car supply and what that may look like three three months down the road, then potentially looking at your used car inventory should be more strategic so that you know which cars to wholesale and and, and, and which cars to to keep. Well, if, if you could only really know, I mean, at a macro level, it may be likely there'll be shortages, but can any of us really say here today 
what brands will have more shortages than other, what, what model uh, trim combinations will have or equipment combinations will have more shortage than others. I mean, things are just never absolute. There's so many different variables that it becomes very difficult to, um, you know, to, to decide you're going to take a firm course of action today based on what you think might happen sometime in the future that is going to be influenced by a multitude of variables. I mean, if, if you guessed right, you could be a big winner. I think the odds are that there are so many unknowns about what's going to happen in the future that the likelihood is that you're going to be wrong. So, you know, it's, it's a gamble to try and run your business today based on what you think is going to happen uh, long into the future. I think it's a much better strategy. Let's sell cars today prudently in the environment that we currently can see and understand. Yeah, and I think that also probably comes with the idea of maybe defining what is winning in today's world. And then hence, when you can clarify what that means to win in today's economic environment, then you can start to enact some of the different strategies uh, that would make the most sense for your business. Precisely. And, and in the face of a significant crisis, I think, you know, winning first and foremost means surviving. And that's why I necessarily don't feel bad, even if my inventory, even if my recommendations liquidate inventory isn't right on the on the inventory strategy side. Liquidating inventory for cash during uh, an economic crisis cannot be wrong advice from a survival standpoint. So uh, yeah. again, I, I'm I'm very convicted to the strategy again first for the purpose of survival second for the opportunity of uh opportunity of 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 gain using your vehicle inventory smartly so survival is paramount in my mind excellent thank you for for the clarification for all this so let's 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 go on to this next uh topic of the used car markets the auto industry has enjoyed record sales over the last seven to eight years. Millennials are alleged to comprise the biggest group of buyers, yet this same group is more environmentally conscious and more digitally connected. You know, I think one of the things that I think about when I see this, the statement here um, is if we do look back to the cash for clunkers program, uh, part of that program when it was implemented was not just to stimulate the economy, but there was the other side of that, that there were, that there were people that wanted to get rid of some of the more uh, less environmental friendly vehicles on the road. So I guess I'm curious that on your end, you know, once we do have an industry and a consumer buying power that does recover, what may be the makeup of the used car inventory? Well, I think at the essence of that question is what is the future of uh, hybrid and electrification? And I want to believe it has to be the future for a lot of reasons, environmental and otherwise. And um, But I also believe that the drive towards fuel efficiency uh, has a couple of different components. One is environmentally minded, you know, uh, younger people or, or people in general. Uh, but I also think that policymakers have a lot to do with uh, the drive towards more electrification and, and hybrids. And I know that there are countries in Europe and in Asia that have mandated that it's going to happen, but I think it takes government fiat to really force that issue. 
Otherwise, it will come, I think, very uh, slowly and perhaps with uh, stops and starts. So in, in my mind, the greatest variable or driver of, of the continued push towards uh, more environmentally friendly vehicles has a lot to do with the administration and uh, what is the next administration going to look like. Uh, in my mind, that's the big variable there. Is there anything that you see on your end with used car data that would lead you to believe that there is a, you know, relatively speaking, a superfluous supply of hybrids and electric vehicles such that, you know, retailers would look to capture those vehicles? Well, un- unfortunately, the the used car park as it exists right now is comprised of a relatively small percentage of purely electric vehicles. It's growing, but it's, it's growing fast, but it's growing on a small base and still constitutes in absolute terms, a very small percentage of the overall used car park um, and hybrids, you know, only slightly more. So it's really difficult to, uh, to say that the, the powertrain of the vehicle is, yet to be recognized as, as a significant differentiator, positive or negative, in, in the used car market. They're out there, but it just doesn't constitute enough of the market really to command, uh, meaning, at least in, in my view, meaningful trends. I would like to believe that that will change, but it's uh, unfortunately still a relatively small percentage of the total. So, you know, one of the things that I'm hearing more and more about, and I would think it makes sense because it seems like the government and in general, the economy has a somewhat of a similar roadmap to the 08 financial crisis. And that was and that is a a cash for clunkers type of program being re-implemented. You know, as I just mentioned that there were there were kind of two big parts of that cash for clunkers program is one to stimulate the economy and stimulate buying it. And the second part was to essentially replace some of the less efficient vehicles with more efficient vehicles. If you were on the, you know, you were in charge of policy here and there was going to be a cash for clunkers type of program again, what kind of adjustments would you like to see to it? Well, I don't think that we are going to see a cash for clunkers program. And I do know that there is emerging talk about it. Uh, But the reason that I don't think we're going to see one is that um, presumably the incentive would be to turn in your used car and buy a new vehicle. I don't think that there is going to be uh, an excess supply of new vehicles for a very long time because the supply chain of the OEMs is being disrupted by the COVID crisis. And it's going to take many months, if not years for some, for them to be fully reconstituted. So you could give people a lot of incentive to turn in uh, their, their old used car and have really not much new car inventory to, to sell. So I don't think as a stimulus program, it's actually warranted. And, and I know your question is in a slightly different angle, but um, I don't think I don't think the policy underlying uh, cash for clunkers in this crisis is is warranted as it was in 08. In 08, the problem was that there were tons and tons of new cars sitting on dealers' lots that needed to be moved. So it made sense to get all those old fuel, in, those inefficient fuel cars and 
polluting cars off the road in favor of uh, more environmentally friendly, friendly ones, and at the same time relieve a glut of new car inventory. But we don't have a glut of new car inventory, or we're not going to have a glut of new car inventory. So I don't think policymakers will land on that strategy. Rather, what I see is the clear problem where the clog in the plumbing pipes exists currently in the automotive ecosystem is in the used car market. We've got an unprecedented large number of vehicles sitting at auctions that aren't selling. And just to give you some sense of it, in the course of roughly one month from mid-March to mid-April, at Mannheim auctions alone, uh, it, the, the, the volume of cars that came in waiting to be sold jumped 100,000 cars. The, the market day supply of inventory at our auctions right now is roughly 140-day supply. Well, if you go back to the same period one year ago, we had a 22-day supply. Mm. Hmm. So, so where, the real, where the real clog in the pipes are is in that used car market, and particularly these cars that are sitting at auction waiting to be sold are late model cars that are being turned in off lease and defleeted from rental car companies. So I think the smartest thing the government could do, or for that matter, the manufacturers could do, is put incentives on certified used vehicles. Because until those vehicles clear out through the system, nothing good is going to happen at the retail level or the wholesale level. Oh, I mean, and unfortunately, that unfortunately, I don't know that that has the ability to drive an environmental minded outcome. Um, but it certainly would uh, significantly address the, um, you know, the, the back channel problem in the automotive ecosystem. Well, I, actually, I, I think it would serve the environmental side of things because there's way more credence given. It's it's not a popular credence, but nonetheless, it is a true credence that if you do want to be become more environmentally friendly, it is better for people to buy a used car and drive that all the way till extinction rather than to buy a new car, buy a hybrid, buy electric vehicle, where more things were taken out from the earth to develop that. And so there is credence to the idea of buying used cars from environmental. Well, I guess you're right. I never really thought of it, never really thought about it that way, but you may very well be right. Well, that that is actually super enlightening and interesting, actually, to hear your side of that, because that's definitely not anything that I've heard before. Again, I guess this is why it's it's great to have you on and and talk about these things because the default of what I'm seeing in the retail space is okay we need a cash for clunkers program and yeah perhaps there is a bit of a twist to it where the automakers and together with NADA lobbying Congress they do start to look at more of the used car market which goes back to your recommendation that cash is king I mean this is all starting to make sense to me now yeah, in a, in a big picture way, it does. But I mean, to be sure, it's still very fluid. And I'm there's, sure. you know, there's winds blowing in every different direction. But, you know, as I always come back to, you know, what are the major, not the only, but what are the major macroeconomic forces that drive markets? And, you know, it's, it's supply and it's demand. And right now, what I see is a high supply in the wholesale market, and I predict a relatively weak demand for some time to come on the retail side. So, you know, you tell me what principle of economics or force of nature 
would say otherwise when you have high supply and low demand that it won't have a toll on prices. It won't have a deflationary effect on prices. And ultimately consumers, ultimately consumers will be the winners of those deflationary prices. Yeah, I agree. And, and you know, I've, I, I've been such a big proponent of advocating more for used cars these days. One, from an economic standpoint, just the fact that, you know, there's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of of the mindset right now that's, and this was even before the economic crisis that, you know, we as a society need to be a bit more financial savvy. We need to save a little bit more. And so, you know, perhaps buy the used car because cars, especially over the last 10 plus years, 15 years, they've been made really, really well. And there's lots of great technology that you can find in these cars nowadays that it's, again, you can get a, a really good 2015 Hell, you can even go older than that. You can go like a 2012 Audi A8 for like $35,000 and get that thing pretty well loaded. And again, it's it's a well-built car kind of thing. So, I mean, I'm 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 with the whole idea of 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 consumers looking to buy more used cars. There is no question used cars are great values. So, uh let's move on to a a topic that I think is going to be coming well, it, it probably won't be discussed anytime soon, but nonetheless, at least when the economy was doing good, there were a lot of businesses, including uh, some or at least one that I know of within the Cox automotive ecosystem that is moving towards the, you know, the, the mobility ecosystem. And uh, I have a quote here, the crisis also could, also could halt development on new services that distract from the core businesses of building and selling profitable vehicles. This is John Cassessa, who's an investment banker now, but was previously a Ford Motor executive. So this leads me to believe that some of the mobility companies that are out there, and they're specifically relying on, on the used car market, this presents a very, very big challenge for, for these companies. Do you believe that there's room for any kind of, yeah, do you believe there's any room for these mobility services in the next year? Well, in the next year. So there's no question that mobility services are um, on the forefront of the future of the automotive industry. And it's where presently most of the, um, or I shouldn't say most, a great deal of the R&D um, budgets of the manufacturers and suppliers are being allocated. And of course, when you talk about mobility services, that encompasses a, a wide range of things. Um, and autonomous cars in your mind may or may not fit in that category. But suffice it to say, these are all um, capital intensive uh, endeavors. And I think that they're not going to go away, but I do think they're going to get pushed out. And I, we saw an announcement perhaps just this morning, I think, from General Motors that they were yeah. shutting down Maven. Uh, their Maven program. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that's just emblematic of, of, you know, good, practical, prudent decision-making, cost-cutting at the manufacturers. They're, I don't think they're necessarily giving up on, on mobility services, uh, but I think under the current uh, capital needs of the companies, I think they're reallocating budgets and those are likely to be uh, defunded. But I don't believe that they're going to go away. I think it's just going to get pushed out. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I believe that what one of the things that will happen is the, 
you know, the good ones will look to find a way to stick around and the bad ones will go away, right? I, I, so let me just give you a, a sense of what I think is a good one, what I think is a bad one in, in the mobility service realm. Um, I think car, um, I think car sharing, where the idea that, um, that one person may have access to many vehicles in a fleet, depending on, you know, whether they want a pickup truck today or a luxury car tomorrow, and they can move in and out of vehicles. This is what I'm referring to now is car sharing, the one to many relationship. And, and I think you've seen several examples of companies who have tried, you know, where you pay one fee and you can switch in and out of cars. I, I think that's one of the bad models. The math simply doesn't work. Um, nobody or not many people or not enough people are willing to pay enough money to cover the depreciation of a high-dollar fleet of vehicles that largely sit idle uh, while people are deciding whether or not they want to drive this one or that one today. I think that's a model that's bad. Uh, it doesn't work, and I think you're going to see those shut down if they're not already been shut down. On the other hand, I think in the mobility realm, uh, a model that makes a lot of sense is not car sharing, but ride sharing. You know, um, may, you know, we, we all understand when you say the words mass transit, you know, we think about uh, buses and planes and, and trains. That's mass transit. I see vehicles being uh, ripe disruptors for mass transit to become micro transit, mm -hmm. uh, where, um, you know, where you might be able to push a button and, and instead of having to deal with the car payment to get yourself to work and instead of having to go to the train station and work on a fixed schedule of a train route or a bus route, uh, I can see a day where you push a button on your phone and a car will arrive at your door guaranteed within, you know, five or seven or 10 minutes. Now, there might be one or two or three other people in that vehicle, but you know what? When you get on that train or bus, there's going to be many more than two or three people sitting around you. And that trainer bus is going to make many stops that are not yours. So I don't know about you, but you know, I'd rather organize my life around a five or seven minute uh, wait on demand uh, to get in a vehicle uh, properly secured, you know, uh, maybe with two or three other people than get on a train or a bus with hundreds of other people. Now, obviously there are some, issues that need to be worked out, who are those other people, can I trust them, that sort of thing. But those are solvable problems. Um, so I, I think that ride sharing, and, and, if, and fundamentally what ride sharing does is it takes the cost of driving a mile or, or transporting yourself for a mile in a vehicle from a very high rising cost to a much lower cost. The cost of driving a mile of a vehicle today when you consider ownership and all of the incidental expenses associated with with ownership, including gasoline and maintenance and repair and depreciation, the cost of moving a mile in a vehicle is high and it's getting higher every day. And more and more, it's getting out of reach of more and more people. So I think that uh, micro private transportation makes a lot of sense. And it, it also takes a burden off of the public infrastructure of, of the economy. Yeah, 100%. I mean, um, as part of at least the first package of the CARES Act, it allocated about $25 billion to all the transit agencies. And I know that a lot of these transit agencies are going to be using this more for, you know, capital type projects and expenditures. And I've always looked at that, like, I always looked at that as well. You know, why don't we look to maximize that which we already have? A, 
as as we've been talking about, a glut of used cars now. And B, we have these roads already that we don't really, that we need just to use better. And certainly one of the aspects then, or one of the tools, one of the ways we can use the roads better and use the supply of used cars is through ride sharing, which, you know, hearing some of, you know, hearing you share that that's potentially an opportunity is, uh, is, is kind of a, is a bright side for me, at least. Uh, I've always thought of ride sharing to kind of be close to its plateau already, but certainly I'm, I'm open to um, knowing you know, I, I guess how the used car market can actually now effectuate uh, transit services. Well, you know, if you think about uh, the airline industry or the cruise ship industry, in, in spite of their current, uh, in spite of their current state under the COVID environment, um, there are a whole range of of air uh, travel options, all the way from somebody owning their own private jet, to leasing a jet, to being part of a fractional ownership of a jet, to taking uh, a, a, a commercial jetliner with a first-class ticket versus an economy seat. And then, you know, after the, the planes in one country become too old, they get sold to another country who, you know, uses them for another life cycle. So, so and you can make the same analogy of cruise ships. Some people own their own yacht and, you know, the same analogy. So my point is, is that the asset of transportation, whether it be a plane, a boat, or an automobile, uh, has a life cycle. And at every phase of that life cycle, there is an audience that's willing and capable financially of commanding that asset. And um, so I, I think that, taking that abstract concept and applying it to used cars. You know, if, if you happen to be particularly well off, uh, you might be able to press a button and uh, have a vehicle arrive at your door in five minutes. It's guaranteed to be, to be a one-year-old uh, luxury car. And if I happen to be uh, less uh, financially well off, I might have to press a different button uh, because of my budget where I press a button instead of having your car arrive in five minutes. Maybe I have to wait 20 minutes, and maybe the vehicle that arrives at my door uh, might be uh, a four-year-old car. And that four-year-old car that arrives at my door four years earlier might have been the car that arrived at your door. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I guess you, you you see where I'm going. Used cars have a definite role in this. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it might not appeal to the uh, wealthiest crowd who wants to ride share. I mean, think about the Uber application. I mean, right now we can press a button to have a black car. We can press a button to have an Uber X and we pay accordingly. Mm -hmm. And that, right, right. So it's that stratification uh, that will cover vehicles, I think, of all ages. Does that make sense? It absolutely makes sense. It it absolutely does. And again, this is this is part of hopefully not just the learning experience for me, but for others, because I, I, these are, I don't even want to say these are facts. I think these are truths. I think the, the reality is of what we're dealing with is w- that we have plenty of used car assets now, especially now, right? And there there can be these better ways to utilize those existing 
um, the, those existing assets. So it, abs- it, it makes a, a lot of sense. You're so right. I, bill- billions, billions of dollars right, of right. vehicle assets. And, and you know what I know, and that is that the average vehicle is used, has 4% utilization, maybe two hours a day. So don't think about the other 22 hours that that high dollar asset is sitting idle and un, uh, unutilized. So, so you're 100% right. The, the real problem with transportation is the utils or underutilization of a, of a high fixed cost asset and one that's depreciating. So the only way to get uh, more utility is to have that vehicle in service more often or for more people. That has to be the future of transportation uh, to a certain extent, much greater than we know it today. And you had mentioned one metric there, too, that I hope continues to gain more traction and also just understanding, and that is when you're looking at a vehicle, new or used, and you're looking at, you're looking at it now from a, from a point of a cost per mile. And that is an entirely different way to look at a, you know, your own personal fleet of cars or even a business's fleet of cars. Um, and so, you know, that I, I hope... I hope that is something that's as we continue to move forward, the cost per mile, the, you know, pay per mile, all those kinds, there's pay per mile insurance that's becoming a little bit more recognizable. All these kinds of services are, are when applied, especially to used cars, it makes absolute sense, business sense to start to look at your inventory to, if you're a consumer, to look at more used cars than, than new cars. But of course we are human. We are emotional beings we all like the shiny new toy too. Let me share something with you really, let me just share this with you because it's really fascinating and it's counterintuitive. You know, you might think that the highest cost per mile would be somebody who's driving a uh, late model luxury car or a new luxury, new model luxury car. Okay. In fact, the opposite is true. Generally speaking, the highest cost per mile in a vehicle is borne by the people in our society that are least able to afford it. Now, why would that be? Well, one of the biggest costs of driving a mile is paying for the car, financing it. And one of the biggest components of that cost is the interest rate that you pay. And it is the reality that that the uh, least well-off people in our society generally pay the highest interest rates. And that high interest rate that somebody might pay, you know, that could be in the neighborhood of 12, 15, 18, maybe even 22%, uh, generally results or translates into a higher cost per mile than the difference between driving a $15,000 car or a $45,000 car. Mm. So all the more reason why uh, people who currently take mass transit right now uh, are likely to ultimately uh, take uh, micro transit. Uh, in, in the future, in the form of rideshare and used vehicles. Now, micro transit. I would love if uh, retailers were to adopt uh, that sort of language. I, I don't know if uh, I don't know if that would happen anytime soon. But uh, certainly, micro transit does speak more to the mobility services in the mobility culture that a lot of manufacturers are starting to adopt. And as it trickles its way down to the tier three level, I'm sure micro transit will be more widely accepted, but uh, certainly I, th- I think it would be nice if, you know, as economies start to open, you go into a dealership and they say, hello, how can we help you? How can we service your micro transit needs? 
I think that would actually bode very well to the customer experience, to be honest with you. Uh, well, Mr. Pollock, uh, I think there's so many great things that you do, and I appreciate your time and sharing some of your insights. I, I know that everyone is always hitting you up for questions and insights. Perhaps I want to flip that script a little bit and ask you, sir, that for the for for my listeners and for anyone else that would be tuning in, you know, this is kind of my Jerry Maguire moment here. How can people help you? Wow, <laughs> I didn't see that question coming. Um, you know, I. I'm very fortunate. I, I feel very blessed and um, I get actually more enjoyment out of giving than taking. So, um, you know, I, I, I think what I would ask for are, are people to just take a little bit more of their time uh, to give. And ultimately I believe that more happiness is derived by giving rather than taking. And I think if more people could just be a little bit more uh, kind and a little bit more charitable, particularly in this crisis moment where uh, where not-for-profits are, are struggling in a big-time way, um, I think that if we could all just show a little bit more gratitude towards each other uh, in the form of kindness and in the form of, of, uh, of, of charity, I think that that's the best thing in the world that I could ask for at this point in my life. Thank you for that question. Amen. Amen. Listeners, thanks for tuning in to this episode of Wisco Weekly as we end every episode. Cheers. Prost. Lachaim. Kipis. Nastravi. Salud. Kampai. Mabruk. Tutsins. Gambe. Yamas. Nastarovie. Vo and salute to the quarantine experience. Hey, listeners, co-host Kelly Cruz here. Thank you for joining us on another episode. Always very appreciative to have you along for our journey. We're also very appreciative for two of our great partners, Automotive Mastermind and Co-Motion Miami. Just the beginning of a lot of great things that we have coming up for you. If you are enjoying being along with us, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or Facebook. Another way you can rate and review is to check out our episode page and follow the link there. Not sure what the top rating is, but if you are having a great time, give us that top rating. If you're not having a great time, then let us know why and how we can improve. So we look forward to uh, continuing to make things even better. We look forward to being with you soon.